Hi everyone, and welcome back to Murder in the North. I'm Zach. And I'm Kelby. And before we get into this week's episode, we wanted just to take a quick second just to say thanks, because we really appreciate everything for you guys listening to us and taking time out of your days to not only listen, but to also share this podcast with family and friends. We have just found out that we just reached over 200 total plays so far. So exciting. And in the last week alone, over 40 people have listened. So it's crazy for us to kind of think that this is really kind of been growing as much as it has so quickly and we really just wanted to say thanks yeah and for those that don't know zach and i actually record the podcast in zach's parents basement so we don't really have like a fancy what would you call it setup i guess like right now zach's on the bed and i'm at his desk with the controls so it's, it's nothing fancy but we just wanted to express our gratitude and really just say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It may not seem like a lot, but for us, the fact that even one person's taking the time out of their day to listen really means a lot to us. Alrighty, so jumping into our case sources this week, there's actually a lot. It's pretty extensive, so instead of listing them off one by one, we will make sure that we post them in the show notes. So getting into the episode this week... Each year in Canada, it is estimated that between 70,000 to 80,000 people go missing each year. Although most are found within days, many others join the growing list of long-term missing and murdered Canadians. And after looking at statistics, it showed that British Columbia was the province with the most number of disappearances, followed by the Yukon. Researching disappearance cases and listening to other podcasts speak on these cases gives me all kinds of emotions. Sadness because these people are missing and no one knows where they are. Sometimes it can take years before anything is found. Sometimes these people or remains are never found, which is also incredibly sad, not only for the victim, but for their families. These types of cases also give me hope that the more we spread awareness and shed light on these cases, the higher the chance of someone coming forward with information is. These cases also make me angry because how do people just disappear? I understand that there are many situations and circumstances in which someone can go missing or disappear, but the idea that someone can pick up and leave to never be seen again is just mind-boggling to me. No, I agree. So, with that being said, I'm sure you can assume what kind of case I'm going to be talking about this week. I already have, like, a really good, like, I not a good feeling, but I have a feeling that I already know what it's about. Because I mentioned something to you last week when I was researching my case. I was like, hey, have you ever heard about this? So I'm wondering if that's what it is. You're going to have to wait and see. Um, so like I said, I'm sure, I'm sure you can assume what kind of case I'm going to be talking about. But I wanted to take a different approach this week because we haven't done this before. So this week we're going to be talking about several different disappearance stories. The first case we're going to be talking about takes place in Norbay, Newfoundland in 1996 and is about the abduction of siblings Adam, Trevor, and Mitchell O'Brien. Yeah, so this was not what I mentioned to you last week. Never mind. So, at this time, Adam is 14, Trevor is 11, and Mitchell is a few weeks shy of his fifth birthday. Their mother's name was Diana O'Brien and their father's name was Gary O'Brien. The two were separated with Diana having full custody and Gary visitations. There was not much information on Diana and Gary's relationship, but Gary did struggle with mental health such as suicidal tendencies and also had a history of violence. Gary was described as being quiet, introverted, resourceful, 
and he worked as an electrician. So as I mentioned, this case takes place um, in 1996 on November 9th. The morning was described as hectic with both Adam and Trevor beginning their morning by completing their newspaper route where they would deliver newspapers. This day was a Saturday, which meant the boys would be seeing their father as every Saturday Gary had visitations. Diana lived in Mount Pearl, Newfoundland, Gary in Torbay, Newfoundland, which was about a 20 minute drive from one another, so not too far. And every Saturday when Gary would have visitations, he would drive to Diana's home to pick up the three boys, spend the day with them, and return them back to Diana's in the evening. On this day, November 9th, Gary would call Diana to inform her that he was running a bit behind, but would still pick up the boys for his, vi- his visit. At this time, the youngest boy, Mitchell, wasn't feeling very well. He was sick, and Diana informed Gary that she thought keeping the boys home would be best since Mitchell was sick. Try and kind of keep them home so they just don't have to worry about going out. It's understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when he's not feeling so well. And he's so young, right? Exactly. But Gary was unbothered by this and still wanted to take the boys for the day, so Diana allowed it. The days rolled into the evening, and soon Diana is sitting home waiting for the boys to return home. The time gets later and later, and by 8 p.m., Diana is starting to worry, as the boys are usually home before this time. At 8.30 p.m., Diana received a phone call from Gary, stating he was not going to return the boys, and that Diana would never see them or Gary ever again. What? He went on to say that he rigged his home, and if anyone was to try and enter, it would explode. All right. This obviously caught Diana off guard, but in the moment, she asked Gary to speak to the children. Gary would proceed to tell Diana that, quote-unquote, she would know what life would be like without her boys for her next birthday. I guess this was like a few days after her birthday. And he ended the call by saying later. And that was the last time Diana heard from Gary and her three sons, Adam, Trevor, and Mitchell. During this time, Diana's sister was with her and police were called when they showed up to Gary's home. It was wired with two 400-pound propane tanks. So he really wasn't, like, lying when he said that it would go up. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. So had someone even rang the doorbell, this could have set the bomb off and have destroyed not only the home, the person who entered, or rang the doorbell, but also surrounding area. Yeah, like, if he had that much, like, you said it was propane tanks, Mm -hmm. like, that probably would have destroyed the houses around him across the street, and if there was houses behind him, even those houses... Holy. Yeah. And like I said, he was an electrician, right? So that was his profession. So Diana mentioned that Gary had threatened to take the children away from her in the past, which makes sense with his history of violence, but she would have never imagined that he would have done this. Uh, So for those who are unaware, Newfoundland is an island. um, So in order to leave, you'd have to leave on a boat or a plane. The police had hopes that the boys would be found soon. However, that wasn't the case, and neither the boys or Gary were found. This case went stagnant for about a year until October of 1997, when a diving team went searching in the water for any potential evidence. After searching, the team was able to locate the engine assembly of a 1989 Ford Tempo, which was located near Flat Rock, which from my understanding is a place where the like, cliffs overlook the ocean. Yeah. Are you familiar with that place? Uh, not so much, no. Zach's family's from Newfoundland, that's why I was asking. (laughs) 
This location was also about 10 kilometers or 6 miles from where the boys went missing. The team ran the serial number on the engine and it came back belonging to Gary's 1989 Ford Tempo. This was the only piece of evidence found. Though at this point, it was suspected that Gary had potentially drove off the cliff with the boys in the car as well. With the Atlantic Ocean surrounding Newfoundland, and with the Atlantic Ocean being known as choppy and dark, it's possible that on impact, parts of the car broke and drifted away with the tide. However, Diana believes this to be a ploy, and she firmly believed that Gary would not harm the boys. So she just almost thinks that she he just drove the car into the ocean, possibly like by himself, just to like, if they found it, think that he did something. Right. The following year, police received a phone call from an anonymous tip in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is over 4,000 kilometers away from Flat Rock. Police believed this tip to be reliable as the woman stated she babysat for Gary and even knew intimate details like one of the boy's nicknames that was never released to the public. She informed police she recognized the boys from their missing persons flyer. Police attempted to reach out to this woman numerous times over the next two years to try and obtain more information, but was unsuccessful. Police even brought this tip forward to the news in hopes the woman would call back, but police would not hear from this caller ever again. With this tip, police would confirm that they now believe the boy's last sighting was in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Police would continue to get tips stating the boys were seen across Canada, even into the United States. But these were not seen as credible sources, which meant police were unable to look into these tips further. I feel like it would be so hard for them to get into the States because, like, there would be a database to use to look up, like, missing persons or, like, people that are wanted, like, type of stuff like that. And, like, I don't see any way that Gary wouldn't be on that. Or especially the boys. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure there's a will, there's a way, right? I guess that's true, yeah. It's also 1996, so like not too old, but like not obviously not too recent. Mm-hmm. Um, so this case is still open today, and there's actually a $50,000 reward for anyone that has information. We will leave contact numbers in the show notes for anyone who may have information pertaining to this case. We will also post photos on our Instagram, which is at Murder in the North Podcast, and we'll also like have that linked in our show notes. Life after the boy's disappearance was very difficult for Diana. I feel for her and can't even begin to like imagine or explain how she must feel. Diana would actually become involved in organizations that were set up to help locate missing people, just like her sons. Diana continues to believe to this day that her sons are still alive, where other family members have altering beliefs. So now I'm going to kind of go into the theories of the case, like what people believe. Okay. So one of the first theories surrounding this case is kind of like what I mentioned before, With part of the engine being found, people believe that Gary might have drove over Flat Rock into the water, killing himself and the boys. Since the engine was not found for a year later, this would allow it time to dismantle and allow pieces to wash away in the water and break down. If you remember in the beginning, Gary had phoned Diana prior to picking up the boys, stating he was running a bit behind. This could have been because he was constructing the bomb, which would have meant that after he picked up the boys, he didn't actually go home. It doesn't really make sense for him to take the boys home and set up the bomb there. No, exactly. And then he would almost have to finish it when they left. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense that after calling Diana to inform her that he was not bringing the children home, that he mentioned the bomb too. 
knowing that the police would go there first, which would also buy him some time. The second, yeah, the second theory is that perhaps he did not drive over the cliff on the day he abducted the children. Search teams were searching the water almost right away so that if the engine was there, the likelihood of the diving team finding it would be pretty high rather than locating it a year later. Yeah. People were saying that this could have been a decoy. There was also that tip in Thunder Bay. People don't know if that tip was actually accurate because they never were able to get in touch with that caller. Well, and especially with that tip, like the one thing that I kind of thought of is like if he had any family that like wasn't in Newfoundland, then if he like they wouldn't they would know the boys. Mm -hmm. So there's a possibility that they could have called it in to help out Gary. But like it's it's yeah. so hard to really know for sure or they called and then gary found out and like bribed them or something i'm not sure yeah um another theory is that he might have murdered his sons elsewhere buried their bodies or tossed it into the water and fled newfoundland by renting a car and like going on a ferry um as i that, mentioned sorry the one thing i almost wonder because like we were literally talking about the fairies last night or the night before with my mom and like I almost wonder like similar to like a border like a, how I just mentioned with the border if they had anything to like warn the fairies to like keep an eye out for these guys because like you would have to take yeah a ferry or a flight to get out mm-hmm. you literally cannot drive off of the island I also would assume that he would have probably altered his appearance to like make himself look different but also we what we've learned is a lot of the criminals aren't smart it's a good point Another theory is that Gary dropped the boys off in some sort of community, like a cult, living off the grid or an Amish community, could have like where they could have been brainwashed. And some even say that Gary might have even died by suicide because of his suicidal tendencies that we talked about in the beginning. Was there like any like evidence to kind of back that one up at all? There's no evidence at all. These are just all theories. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's the case on the O'Brien brothers. If you or anyone you know has information on where the O'Brien brothers are, please call the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which we will have listed in the show notes. And that is the story of the O'Brien brothers. Our next case takes place in Brampton, Ontario, and is about Tatiana Cuevas. Tatiana was born on August 18th, 2012, to Chris and Alan and John Juan Carlos Vega Cuevas. I feel like I should know this since we go to Brampton like once a month. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't live too far from Brampton. So when I saw that case, I was like, I definitely have to talk about it. Four months after Tatiana was born, her parents split up. It was alleged that dad was mentally and verbally abusive, which was a contributing factor to the separation. After the separation, the couple were in court for five years as mom, Kristen, was hoping to obtain full custody of Tatiana. In August 2017, she was granted full custody, but dad had legal rights still to visit. It was stated that John had a history of withholding to the point that emergency orders were released to get her back. So when I read that, I'm assuming Amber Alerts. Yeah, I think so. And I I guess everyone would be familiar with Amber Alerts. Yeah, pretty much just like for any listeners that we have outside of Canada, uh, whenever like an Amber Alert happens, 
there's actually like a mass text message that gets sent out with like a description of the child and a description of a possible suspect as well. Or like a vehicle. I feel like other countries would have this too, no? Uh, I think the States does. I don't, I, I don't know about any other ones. But through this, John was still allowed to have visitations. And in July of 2018, John informed Kristen of a two-week trip he had planned to visit France and Germany for himself and Tatiana. Now, with everything that happened with John withholding Tatiana, as I mentioned, he was still legally allowed to like have visitations and take her outside of the country as long as it was approved by the mom. He also had to have um, like a provide an itinerary and Kristen, the mother, had to sign a consent form. Now, as I mentioned with everything legal that had gone on between the pair, Kristen was reluctant to allow Tatiana to go on this trip. And based on what I read, I would also feel the exact same way. She was scared and rightfully so. I would be too based on the history that we've talked about. Oh, 100%. Kristen would actually speak with her lawyer about this situation and was advised that if she did not allow John to take Tatiana on this trip, that this could potentially look bad on her end, like she was withholding Tatiana from John or like interfering with his parental rights. But at the same time, like with everything that's gone on like personally myself the last thing i'd be focused on is how this makes me look do you know what i mean absolutely but also think of it if you're talking to a lawyer right that's a good point i feel like in the eyes of the jury you might look bad so john would provide kristen with an itinerary and kristen would reluctantly sign a consent form allowing tatiana to go on this trip Both John and Tatiana left Canada on July 29th, 2018, with the arrival date back into Canada being August 12th, 2018. August 12th came, and Kristen had not heard from John. The agreement was once John and Tatiana arrived back into Canada, that John would bring Tatiana back home to Kristen's. August 13th came, and still there was nothing, but Kristen gave John the benefit of the doubt. She thought maybe their flights got canceled or delayed, and she was trying to just give him the benefit of the doubt. August 14th came, and Kristen still had not heard anything from John, so she went to Peel Regional Police to report Tatiana missing. And on August 20th, a warrant was issued for John Cuevas. On August 21st, a Canada-wide warrant was issued for John Cuevas for his criminal charge of contravention of a court order, basically meaning he breached or violated his rights. Tatiana's last sighting was between July 29th to August 4th in the following locations. Paris, France, Budapest, Hungary, Dubai, Nigeria, which are very different geographic locations. Yeah, like they're jumping all around, especially for saying it was supposed to be Paris and Germany. Mm -hmm. So on August 4th, 2018, Tatiana and John were seen on video surveillance at the airport in West Africa. And this was the last reported sighting of the pair. Dad is also an optometrist, so it's assumed that he may be working as an optometrist in a different country as well. And international abduction makes it very difficult, especially if these other countries don't have to legally, um, like, have certain agreements. Like extraditing Yeah, exactly. Um, It can be difficult for Canada to, like, get that information. Because they can just say... No. Exactly. 
though Tatiana's mother, Kristen, has since organized a GoFundMe in hopes to hire a private investigator. There is also a Facebook page dedicated to Tatiana, and we will have all the photos and all of that information posted on our Instagram, as well as those links posted in the show notes. Jeez, I didn't realize this was actually still, like, ongoing. I thought that you were going to have more information. I do have a little bit. So, John Cuevas is described as a multiracial male. He is five foot eight tall, approximately 160 pounds, with a light complexion. He has short black hair, brown eyes, and possibly a chin strap goatee. He uses aliases, including John Varga, Dr. John Varga, as he's an optometrist by trade, Carlos Cueva, Carlos Cuevas, John Varga Cuevas, and John Cuevas. I know they all sound very similar, but I think it just might be my pronunciation, so I apologize if I'm pronouncing that improperly. John also refers to Tatiana as Bijou or Bibi, and also may introduce her to other people by those names rather than Tatiana. As I mentioned, we will have photos posted on our Instagram and also include phone numbers you can reach out to. Um, alternatively, you can reach out to your local authorities. Tatiana would be nine now, and I hope Tatiana is re- reunited with her family. Um, I was listening to a podcast that her mom was in, and she has like, a younger brother. I really hope that they're able to, to solve this case. Yeah, I hope they can find her and bring her back soon. Especially since she's so young. Exactly. But that is the case on Tatiana Cuevas. Next, I wanted to talk about and shed light on the one place in Canada where numerous people, specifically Indigenous peoples, have gone missing or been murdered. And Zach, you were the one that actually educated me on this because I truly had no idea what it was. But after doing more research and just looking at how many people have just vanished along so this stretch. So many. I think it's very important to talk about you know what I'm referring to. I forget like the full name of it, but I think it's like the Highway of Tears. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. exactly, yeah. So it's called Canada's Highway of Tears. So for those who may not know, the Highway of Tears is a 450 mile or roughly 725 kilometer stretch of land on Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert, British Columbia. Hey, we've actually had a case in Prince George, too. Mm-hmm. It seems like a lot of our cases take place in British Columbia. I was just thinking about that, too, because, like, now it's, I think the last three or four, the last three for sure, have mentioned BC in it. But I wasn't going to add BC to this one, but this is so big that oh, I it's, think it's super important for people to And it's to, so to know underplayed, that. honestly. Like, it is huge, and I don't think as many people realize how many people are actually like went missing or a lot of their cases happened on the highway of tears yeah so that's exactly why i wanted to talk about it today so yeah 725 kilometers that is insanely large that's huge seriously (laughs) to think like an hour like a hundred kilometers for us is like an hour drive Mm -hmm. so like we're looking at like realistically upwards of like nine hours because obviously you're going to make stops and stuff but i'll let you continue So this location has been known to be the location of many missing and murdered Indigenous women going back into 1970. Around 2002, the Highway of Tears started to be recognized more publicly as more people started to go missing or found murdered. The name Highway of Tears came from a person named Florence Naziel, whose cousin vanished from this location in 2005. 
With the Highway of Tears being so large, it makes this location a prime spot for serial killers and victims. As for more than 50 years, this route has been the site of numerous abductions and murders with over 80 plus victims. And that is just those that have been reported. Yeah, exactly. So with this being said, I just wanted to take some time and talk about a few of the victims that have ended up and been found along the Highway of Tears. Before you actually start, I actually watched, because I was going to do the Highway of Tears last week. Really? And yeah, I actually was. But I just like, I knew it was going to be so many, like I knew there was going to be so much information to kind of put into it. And I, whenever I cover a case, I want to cover it like well. You want to go in depth. Exactly. And like one of the things that I did see is like apparently in the RCMP eyes, there's only been like, I want to say like a dozen people. Like, they don't actually have the number as high as it, what I feel should be. Yeah, I also noticed that, too, doing research. Like, on Indigenous reserves, they were mentioning that a lot of the people are, are like, they're not reported. Yeah. Right? So, that's kind of like what I said. It says 80 plus. It did say around 40 victims in, like, 2005, I believe. But, obviously, this is just what the research says. It's, it's most likely more. Mm-hmm. So, in October of 1969, Gloria Moody, um, now two of the references said different ages, so one said 26, one said 27, so I'm going to go with 27 because that was kind of the common denominator of the the sources. So, Gloria Moody was 27-year-old mother of two, and she had been traveling with family on a weekend road trip on October 25th, 1969. Gloria was a member of the Bella Kula Indigenous Reserve of the New Hulk Nation and was found deceased by hunters on a cattle trail approximately 10 kilometers west of Williams Lake along the highways of Tears Road. Her body was beaten and sexually assaulted. She became the first of 18 women identified by the RCMP. Her case was taken over by Project Epana, which is a group that investigates disappearances and deaths along the highways of Tears and British Columbia. Gloria's homicide case remains unsolved to this day and is also Project Ipana's oldest case. 14-year-old, and I'm, I'm going to apologize if I'm saying these improperly. I tried to look up the proper pronunciation, but I'm going to do my best, but I may say it improperly. So 14-year-old um, Aaliyah Sarek Auger of Leitene, First Nations near Prince George said goodbye to her mother as she went to the mall with her brother and sister. After the mall, Aliyah went for a sleepover to friends. However, overnight she was spotted walking in the middle of the middle of the night north in the 2100 block Quince Street. Video surveillance showed her walking towards her home around 1 a.m. This would be the last time Aliyah would be seen. Her body was found eight days later on an embarkment on Highway 16 in February of 2006. Her body was described as unrecognizable. Her death is still unsolved. Like, it's crazy the fact that, like, a lot of these cases just go unsolved. Right? And it also makes it hard because there's so much land. There's so much land and, like, a lot of the people driving by and, like, I think we've said this a lot of times is, like, some people see something and don't realize they're seeing something. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of, you see a car pulled over and like, 
just car pulled over. Right. But I know like now that we're we've been doing this, I believe this is our ninth week. Like now that we're like this into it, it's like we're I more see, vigilant. We, we see a car pulled over and we're like, hmm, what's going on that there? That car's driving awfully slow. Yeah. So I understand these these cases can be quite heavy, um, especially with the age of some of the victims. So I'm also going to list off some of the other victims just to help shed light on how many people have been found or suspected to be located within the Highway of Tears. So Michelin Pear was 18. She was murdered in 1970. Her body was found in August of the same year. Her murder is still unsolved. Gail Wees. 19 years old, was murdered in 1973. Her remains were found in April of 1974. They had a suspect in mind, but no conclusive evidence to convict him. Her case continues to be unsolved. Monica Ignis was 15 years old when she went missing, walking along Highway 16 in December of 1974. Four months later, her body was found. Her case continues to be unsolved. Maureen Moise was 33 years old when she was last seen hitchhiking near Salmon Arm, British Columbia on May 9th, 1981. Her body was found at the end of a turnoff lane heading to Highway 97. Her case continues to be unsolved. Some of the other victims include Delphine Nickel, Alberta Williams, Ramona Wilson, Roxanne Thiara, Alicia Germain, Lana Derrick, Nicole Hoare, Tamara Chipman. And again, these are just a few of the long lists of victims in this area. And, you know, as we mentioned, it doesn't even cover people that went unreported. So, like I said, these cases are very heavy, not only to listen to, but even for me when I was researching. And it sucks because I can't even talk to Zach about them because obviously he, he reacts blindly. So, I can't even really debrief with him, but... Please take care of yourself, Um, and if you know anything, even if you think it may not be helpful, I truly encourage you to reach out because all it takes is one tip to help investigators help put things together. Um, I've created like a pretty um, comprehensive list of different resources um, and like links you can go to support the victims and different numbers you can call if you do have any information. And again, that will all be in like the description or like the show notes. Um, And I know the last few weeks you've also provided some mental health resources. So again, um, like with this topic being so heavy, I will most definitely add those as well. But again, thank you guys for truly listening. We really, really appreciate it. You can follow our Instagram and TikTok at Murder in the North Podcast. If you'd like to suggest a case, you can find that on our Instagram. But again, thank you guys so much. Stay safe and we will see you on Tuesday. Bye guys.